Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Gift Wake, and I'm the System Manager for Medication Use and Pharmacoeconomics at Novant Health. Today, I'm joined by our guest, Paul Paratore, who is a pediatric clinical pharmacist at Denver Health Medical Center in Denver, Colorado. And Paul is serving his second year on the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Sciences Special Advisory Group on Pediatrics. Paul practices primarily in the critical care setting, but has practiced interest in anticoagulation, infectious diseases, and public health. In this episode, we'll be discussing the HPV vaccine among pediatric populations and beyond. So welcome, everyone, and we'll just jump right in. So, Paul, can you describe for us the significance of HPV in the context of our national public health concerns? Of course, and thank you for having me. Um, So across the country, sexually transmitted infections in general uh, are becoming a much greater concern in recent years. Uh, In 2018, the CDC estimated about 20% of people in the United States had an STI, uh, with half of all new infections occurring in youth 15 years and older. And the combined cost of all those new infections was about $16 billion in direct medical costs. Uh, with about a quarter of that accounting for the youth that are 15 to 24 years old. So youth are playing a role in this increase in STIs. Overall, the estimated prevalence of HPV, human papillomavirus, is estimated at about 42.5 million cases, with about 13 million of those being new cases. Um, And that's millions of sexually active adolescents potentially contracting HPV infections in the United States, according to our most recent data. The direct medical costs of HPV infections eclipsed all other STIs monitored except for HIV. So though the STI rates appear to dip briefly during the COVID pandemic, they are skyrocketing again, even leading to shortages of drugs like we've all seen with penicillin G-benzathine, which is used intramuscularly for uh, syphilis infections. HPV is of a particular concern for two big reasons. One, it is the most prevalent infectious disease, one of the most prevalent infectious diseases around. It's estimated that around 90 and 80% of sexually active men and women, respectively, will be infected with HPV in their lifetime. Uh, And second, while the vast majority of those cases will self-resolve within a year or two, 10 to 15% of those cases do not. And those cases can progress to serious complications, including genital warts and even cervical, anal, vaginal, and oropharyngeal cancers. HPV vaccines have demonstrated upwards of 95 to 99% efficacy in preventing the occurrence of these persistent high-risk HPV infections. And when you look at the data uh, and look at some of the vaccination programs that have been done uh, in the United States and Australia, Japan, Kenya, and Sweden, they have all demonstrated marked reductions specifically in cervical cancer incidence, preventing as much as 70% of uh, anogenital cancers and 60% of high-risk precancerous cervical lesions. And since HPV vaccine was first recommended in 2006 in the United States, high-risk HPV infections have dropped by about 88% 
in teenage girls and 81% in young adult women. So there's been a lot of success with our vaccine campaigns, both in the United States and abroad. But despite this, surveys conducted suggest that upwards of 70% of American adults do not know what HPV is or understand the potential for these detrimental sequelae like cervical cancer. And though vaccination rates are still going up since ACIP made that formal recommendation in 2016, as of 2021, only 59% of youth age of 13 to 17 had completed their HPV vaccination course. Wow, that's very interesting. Thank you for that thorough background. So let's get into some of the actual vaccine products. Um, which HPV vaccinations are available in the United States? So currently, and since 2016, the only vaccine available is the non-avalent or the nine-valent vaccine known as Gardasil 9. The FDA has historically licensed three HPV vaccines, including the quadrivalent HPV, Gardasil 4, first approved in 2006, and the bivalent HPV, which was Thervorix, which is now available only in Canada. All of those vaccines uh, provide immunity against the oncogenic HPV types, which are 16 and 18, which have been most associated with cervical cancer. The current non-avalent vaccine or nine-valent vaccine protects against those subtypes, but also uh, a number of others, including 6, 11, 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58. 6 and 11 are generally associated with low-risk infections, but can cause anogenital warts and recurrent respiratory papillomatosis. The remaining are considered high-risk and are associated with the full range of post-HPV cancers, including cervical, anal, penile, vaginal, vulvar, and oropharyngeal. And what are the current recommendations for the HPV vaccine? How are these used? So currently, ASIP recommends routine HPV vaccination broadly uh, in all patients nine to 26 years old. All children should receive their first routine dose of the non-avalent HPV at 11 to 12 years old, with a second dose given six to 12 months later. Though the ASIP routine schedule recommends 11 years old, the HPV vaccination can be initiated as young as nine in situations where it is clinically appropriate. So if the first dose uh, is given prior to 15 years of age, then the two-dose series is all they need. Um, if the vaccination is initiated when the patient is 15 to 26 years old, then they will need a three-dose series administered at zero, two, and six months. Uh, and then patients nine to 14 who have received their doses less than five months apart, so that required minimum of six months, they should also receive a third dose to ensure proper immunity. Okay. And are there any special considerations that we need to be aware of? For instance, which patients might need to start immunization at nine years old versus those that can wait a little bit longer and start between 11 and 12 years old? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and there's a lot of clinical considerations to take into, uh, into account. There are always special populations to be familiar with when it comes to vaccines. HPV is no exception. Uh, as we've already talked about, adults and children 15 and older who start the vaccine should re receive that three-dose series as opposed to the two-dose series. Uh, all patients who have immunocompromising conditions should also receive a three-dose series. 
That would include populations with primary immunodeficiencies, such as severe combined immunodeficiency or SCID, uh, and other genetic or myeloproliferative disorders, as well as your, your oncology and chemotherapy populations, your solid organ transplant, your HIV patients, et cetera. You would also want to consider patients on systemic immunotherapy. So those with rheumatoid or autoimmune conditions, such as Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, particularly if they're in active flares and on high-dose steroids, or if they're on any of those medications that are globally immunosuppressing, um, those would be patients you'd want to consider as well. You would also consider early initiation uh, in, in, uh, in, a, in that broad array, array of immunocompromised patients. The other patients who you might want to consider initiation at nine years old would include any deemed clinically necessary. And a specific indication that's called out is patients who have a history of sexual abuse or assault, as they are going to be at higher rates of contracting HPV and potentially cervical cancer at a younger age range than the general population. Sure, that makes sense. Um, so we know who, who should be considered um, to start uh, vaccinations. Are there any patients that should not receive the HPV vaccine? Yeah, it's broadly well-tolerated, but it is not currently recommended in pregnancy. So in patients that are currently pregnant, um, and if you've not already begun your HPV series, it should be deferred until after pregnancy. In the patients who have begun HPV vaccination already, but not completed their series, uh, ACIP does recommend suspending the further doses of that series until after pregnancy. Despite that, there are no recommendations for intervention if a patient that is pregnant inadvertently receives a vaccination, but the universal recommendation is that they do not receive it during pregnancy. Uh, and of course, anybody with a history of severe reactions to vaccines should not receive an HPV vaccination, uh, should talk to their physician before uh, seeking out such vaccination. Patients who would be considered contraindicated for receiving HPV would include anyone with a past life-threatening reaction to an HPV, uh, HSV vaccine, so anaphylactic reactions, et cetera, uh, or any of the ingredients in the HPV vaccine. An interesting call-out for HPV uh, is that it, uh, both of the Gardasil formulations, actually, Gardasil, uh, Gardasil 4 and Gardasil 9, are produced in uh, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, or baker's yeast, and so because of that, anyone with a history of allergy or anaphylaxis to yeast should not receive those vaccines as well. You might also consider deferral of the vaccine in patients with active moderate to severe illness until they are at least afebrile. Uh, and th but that is in keeping with ACIP's general recommendations about giving vaccines during illness that is not specific to the HSV vaccine. But other than that, there are no other hard contraindications listed by the manufacturer uh, nor advised by um, ASIM. Awesome. Thanks for covering that. So with only one preparation available, um, and since the recommendations are, you know, fairly universal, they're standard, um, it seems like vaccination should be pretty straightforward and simple. Is, is that correct? Or would you say otherwise? <laughs> you would think, right? <laughs> um, I think as we've learned with vaccinations across the board, um, it is never simple. Um, and unfortunately, implementing 
and maintaining any kind of robust public health effort is going to require lots of resources, lots of reinforcement, lots of good follow-up with your patient population. And that is not something that universally happens um, in healthcare in general. Uh, there's still a lot of confusion, I think, uh, and misunderstanding amongst both patients and clinicians as to who should be getting an HPV vaccine. Um, surveillance rates for cervical cancer remain relatively high, but routine vaccination for children at optimal age is lower than what is required for herd immunity still. So we haven't hit that goal. We're not, we're not where we need to be. And of course, there are disparities uh, in minority and underserved populations, uh, including in particular the Black and Hispanic women, gay and bisexual men, and Native and Indigenous communities. The incidence of cervical cancer is also highest in Hispanic and Black women, while mortality for those same cases is significantly higher among Black women as well, despite them having the highest rates of surveillance, which is really interesting, um, which may shed light on what we actually do with the information that we're getting in these routine surveillance exams. Also, lower rates in follow-up treatment after an abnormal pap smear, differences in tumor biology, potentially limited access to treatment, and diagnosis at later stages of disease progression may be playing a role in that, um, as well as distrust in the medical system. And that may account for some of the disproportionate impact of cervical cancer on Black women. Yeah, that's very concerning, but I think it also highlights the importance of this topic. Um, from your perspective, what other barriers to HPV vaccination exist? The, the same one that exists for most, and that is always going to be access. Um, getting the vaccine is always a big, is always one of the rate limiting steps. Uh, this and costs are just kind of your perennial barriers to care in all populations in the United States, especially indigent and underserved populations. In particular, children that are uninsured, underinsured, unhoused or have limited or no access to care are going to have a higher incidence of missed vaccinations across the board. And they have lower rates of catch-up vaccination at later dates, even if they were able to initiate routine vaccinations at younger ages. Um, some parents, I think, are also under the impression that their children are too young to be sexually active, such as at that nine-year-old age, um, or are not currently sexually active, but there is no benefit to be derived from vaccination with an HPV vaccine. Uh, however, the greatest event, uh, the greatest benefit is attained when the vaccination occurs prior to sexual activity, prior to exposure to any strains of HPV, before the highest chance of contracting it has occurred. And so um, it is, uh, th there is recommendation, obviously, in patients that are not sexually active because you can preempt their possible exposure. There is still some benefit to be seen in adults, but since most adults as we talked about earlier, the vast majority actually have already encountered some strand of HPV. The overall benefit is somewhat diminished. Um, and it's also not something we like to talk about, but we kind of already addressed it. The children who are in dangerous social situations and at risk of sexual assault are also at high risk of contracting HPV, including the high risk oncogenic subtypes. And those patients should definitely be considered for routine immunization at 11 to 12 years old and as young as nine years old. They should also be immunized if they have a history of sexual assault per ACEF guidelines specifically. Wow, thank you. 
Um, so in the spirit of health equity, um, are there any resources available to increase access um, to these vaccines for uh, medically underserved or indigent children? Yes, there, there are. So outside of, um, outside of private payers, um, there are some resources available to assist. Unfortunately, they're not always well known to clinicians or parents, uh, but most states offer vaccination programs through school and public health organizations. And there are numerous charitable and private vaccination programs out there, depending on where you are. But uh, I think the most critical and universal of these is the Vaccines for Children program which is a federal program that is run on the state level. Uh, it offers vaccines at no cost to all eligible children through VFC enrolled physicians, clinics, schools, public health organizations, and hospitals. Um, so it can be used on the inpatient side as well. In the US, there are about 37,000 enrolled providers. So especially in urban areas, in most of urban areas, and even in some rural areas, you should be able to be able, you should be able to access a VFC provider. The VFC program provides all recommended vaccines in the ACIP pediatric immunization schedule for patients up through 18 years of age, all of them. So this would include your single agent vaccines and also include some combination products like the MMRV, which is the MMR plus varicella, um, or a lot of those DTaP plus um, uh, the like Pediorex, the combination products that have like DTaP, IPV, and Hep B in them in combination. Uh, those vaccines are going to be provided through state and territorial health organizations, and they require compliance with guidance and regulations, which is an, uh, an area in which pharmacists can assist with readily, both in the inpatient setting and also in the clinical setting, in the outpatient clinic setting. Wonderful. What a great resource. Um, so which children are eligible to receive vaccines through the Vaccine for Children program? So it can be a little complicated, uh, but the VFC program does provide quite a bit of guidance as to how to go about that. But essentially all children up through 18 years of age that meet uh, specific criteria are eligible. So that would be in general children who are uninsured, underinsured, and receiving care in a federally qualified health center a rural health center or a delegated institution uh, or a delegated uh, institution. These patients also have to be Medicaid eligible or American Indian Alaska Native, uh, and those are considered qualified. For the purposes of the VFC program, underinsured is defined essentially as an insured patient who has either no vaccine coverage, only partial coverage, or has a cost cap. Um, in which case the plan will only provide a certain amount of money for vaccination. In the latter cases, VFC either covers only the vaccines and insurance, uh, the insurance plan does not, or it will cover the cost of routine vaccination after the patient has exceeded the fixed dollar limit of their cost cap. Those children must receive their vaccinations at a federally uh, qualified health center or a rural health center, whereas other patients uh, can receive uh, or considered eligible if they meet any of those aforementioned criteria. Pharmacists, both in the inpatient and the ambulatory care settings, I think can and should provide uh, and advocate for eligible patients to receive VSC vaccines if their practice locations have access to the program. Uh, we are also in a great position to ensure that VFC products do not go to the wrong patient, uh, which ensures supply is preserved for the most vulnerable patients 
and can also prevent institutions from making costly errors that would jeopardize access to further VFC vaccines. Excellent call out for pharmacists. Um, certainly will appreciate how um, we can support at the front lines and within the communities um, that, we, that we support. So thank you for that. And thanks for the, the dialogue. It's been very insightful. I've learned a lot and I hope others have too. And that's all the time that we have for today. Want to thank our guest, Paul Paratore, one more time for a great topic and discussion. And for our ASHP members, please note that additional resources are available via the ASHP clinical resources page. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe to ASHP official through your favorite podcast provider. And we want to thank you again for tuning into the session of Therapeutic Thursdays. Join us here every Thursday where we'll be talking with ASHP member subject matter experts on a variety of clinical topics, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.